If you would now open, please, to Acts 27. I had Bill read that today because we're going to get to see over the next two weeks one of Paul's shipwrecks. He says, I was shipwrecked three times. And in that passage, uh, Paul's contrasting himself with these false apostles, who, by the way, that's what the section of Scripture last week I referred to where Satan disguises himself as an angel of light because these apostles were boasting in their strengths and all of their pomp and circumstance. And Paul flips it on us and starts to boast in his weakness and all of the ways as a true servant of Christ, he has suffered for Jesus. Because as Christians, yes, we have a theology of glory that we will be glorified, but it comes through suffering. And so I've entitled today's sermon, The the, uh, Calm, The Calm Before the Storm, Because this is a pretty calm passage setting this up in chapter 27. And then next week we are going to see the storm. But when you realize that basically Paul is about to be shipwrecked and adrift at sea and then end up on an island bitten by snakes and cast it off into a fire. I mean, Paul is on his way to Rome. If you're new right now, uh, this is where we are in the book of Acts, life on mission. He's going from Caesarea to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar, and he already knows this is the will of God for him to go to Rome. And if you've ever thought, well, if I'm directly in the will of God, then everything will be smooth sailing, you'd be wrong, because he's directly in the will of God, and he's going to be bitten by snakes, and he's going to be shipwrecked. The calm before the storm. This passage this morning, we're going to see some very chill things. Well, actually, it's kind of chronicles. Luke rejoins the narrative um, like a, a journaling of the destinations where he stops and stops and where he goes and so forth. So unlike most Sundays where I only put the scripture up on the screen, I'm actually going to put a map partway through so that you can flip, keep listening, but look at the map so you can actually see where he is journaling, uh, journaling, where he's journeying to. And then we'll read all the way to verse 12 to see this calm before the storm in his life. So if you would please follow along, beginning in verse one, I'll read all the way to verse 12 and then pray for us. And again, the map will be on the screen starting in verse three. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, again, he's going to Rome, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And and embarking in a ship of Adramidian, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra at Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Ophnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage 
will, will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. The calm before the storm. Let's pray. Well, Father God, every word in your Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lord, and I confess as we begin to read through this, it feels like we are simply reading a travel journal. And yet as we mine deeper into your word, many truths leap off the pages of this of, of your word that not only show us the faithfulness of Paul to persevere in this journey to Rome, but also show us your faithfulness to him through the various storms and trials in our lives. And so God, as we now pause and really meditate upon your word and hear it spoken over us, Lord, we pray that for whatever storms we are going through right now or impending storms that are about to happen in the future, that grace would be imparted to us through your word, and by your spirit, that we would leave strengthened in you for the storms ahead. We pray them, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In September 10th, 2017, Hurricane Irma, a Category 4 hurricane, was going straight towards South Florida. <laughs> it's my backyard, the calm before the storm, two days before. We lived on a golf course you see people lining up to purchase items. There's my kids trying to get propane because the power will go out, not may. Houses get completely boarded up. And the calm before the storm as the hurricane is impending. And everybody is watching and waiting. And then, boom, it hits. This is my kids in front of a tree in our front house after the storm. <laughs> All right, so you get to see what the storm did. I lived through some crazy storms. And by the way, we decided to evacuate. We did go up to Atlanta for that one. We said, we're not gonna stick through this one and white knuckle it. People who've lived in Florida a long time, they're used to this pattern though. And the calm before the storm, it's a phrase that came from sailors where before a terrible storm was about to hit, there was an eerie silence, an eerie calmness that would kind of take over in the sea, where the wind would actually stop. The sea would get super calm. Even the birds would stop chirping. The calm before the storm. Well, as I studied this passage this week, it kind of felt like that. It's sort of like, okay, we're just watching Paul go stop to stop, pick up a different boat, you know, Luke's there, et cetera, et cetera. And then next week, bam! <laughs> Paul is like shipwrecked out at sea. People are about to die. Eventually, as I already shared, he's bitten by a snake on an island. And man, there is a storm coming. And this is the week that is the calm before the storm. And you study human behavior and Paul is very perceptive here. Do you see that at the end? He says, sirs, I perceive that. I perceive, verse 10, that the voyage, there will be injury and much loss. Paul is a perceptive person. And I want to turn on our perceptive gaze and notice three things about the calm before the storm that apply not only to the Apostle Paul, but to all of our lives that I think we can glean 
truths from scripture and apply right now in your life. And I would like to say, it goes without saying, but we don't need hurricanes to be the storms in our lives. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be a loss of a job. It could be the loss of your house. There are so many storms that rage through our lives. You might be here this morning for the first time because you're in the midst of the storm. You say, pastor, you're preaching about before the storm. I'm white knuckling it through one right now. Well, whether you're preparing for a storm or going through one right now, there is grace for you from God's word out of this section of scripture. What do we perceive? What do we perceive before the storm in Paul's life and for our own application as well? There's three things I wanna draw our attention, our perception to this morning. First, before the storm, we perceive kind unbelievers. We perceive kind unbelievers. It kind of jumps out from this section of scripture, not only here, but I'm going to pull in some of next week as well after the storm. We're introduced to a character who we know very little about. His name is Julius. You'll see him there in verse one. He's the uh, centurion, so he's in charge of 600 soldiers of the Augustan cohort. Julius has now been tapped. Julius has now been charged. Paul is a prisoner, remember. He's appealed to Caesar, and now he's been handed off to Julius to give him safe passage, safe journeying to Rome. And so they're picking up various ships along the way, but we're told of the character of Julius by Luke here in the verse that follows, uh, verse two into verse three, says, the next day we put into Sidon, this is verse three, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Later, when they're discussing what they should do, verse nine, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury. And then later, we're told the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner than to what Paul said. Now, He doesn't side with Paul and say, go with Paul's advice. Paul advises him. But I would say this. It is pretty amazing that a centurion over hundreds of soldiers is listening to the advice at all of one of his prisoners, isn't it? This has got to be a pretty humble man. I would think I'd be tempted to say, uh, excuse me, you are the prisoner here. You can zip a lip. I don't need your advice. If I was listening to you, I might be in chains like you. Whatever got you into this circumstance, I don't need advice from prisoners. And I don't need you talking. Go back to the corner of your cell. That's not how Julius is presented to us. He's presented as a person who's listening to Paul as one of the prisoners. And Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, put into God's word that Julius treated Paul very kindly. Not just kind. He wasn't just, he didn't just tolerate Paul. He didn't just put up with Paul. He was very kind to Paul. Paul has enjoyed some liberty up to this point. And granted, he is a Roman citizen. So he does have some prestige that will allow him probably to treat him more like a peer. And yet, nonetheless, he did not have to let him go and hang out with his friends, did he? He did not have to let him off of the ship. And so in Julius, we see a character of this man far from God, who's an unbeliever, who's just doing his job, who's treating a Christian with great unusual kindness. Chapter 28, if you want to flip over there after the shipwreck, they land on an island called Malta. You see this? We were brought safely through and we learned that the island was called Malta. 
the native people showed us, look at it again, unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Very kind, unusual kindness. These indigenous people are super welcoming. They did not have to do this to this group of shipwrecked people. And by the way, the, the, uh, the prisoners themselves, they could have treated them all differently. They didn't. They warmed a fire. They welcomed unusual kindness preserved in God's word with the spotlight put not on the apostles, not on the Christians, on the unbelievers. Very kind, unusually kind towards us, despite our circumstances. And this provokes me. This provokes me that the unbelievers in this section of Scripture, next to the Christians, are being so kind to them. Because I do have a concern sometimes for us as believers. (laughs) Is that because we are fighting a spiritual battle, and it is a spiritual battle in this world, a militancy can take over in our hearts and our minds towards unbelievers. And we presuppose a hostility that people have against us that isn't always there, right? There's a kindness, there's this common grace in humanity where people who are far from God are still very, very kind. Sometimes I go onto social media. I've actually, if you haven't noticed, I've tapped out of social media for the last year or two. I might give it up for good. I just saw so much vitriol, so much anger, so much hate from Christians. Not, and unbelievers, by the way. It's everywhere. It's, it's just like, whoa. And I had people literally tell me, somebody sent me a sermon against Christians being kind. Like, someone thinks that we're supposed to be kind. That's a bunch of fooey. I was like, My Bible says the fruit of the Spirit includes kindness and goodness and gentleness, right? Like kindness makes the short list of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, there's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, kindness. That born again, filled with the Holy Spirit Christians, one of the things God wants to do in humanity, in the renewed humanity, is make us more kind people. And if there is a common grace upon the people of Malta to be unusually kind, if there is a grace upon Julius, a common grace, not a saving grace, but just a fellow humanity treating another human being with dignity and respect to say he was unusually kind, very kind to Paul. How much more so should we, blood-brought brothers and sisters, born of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, where the fruit of the Spirit overflows, that we should be the very most unusually very kind people in the world? Can I please get an amen? We should be kind. This should be the kindest church in the world because we have the fruit of kindness overflowing in our lives. Doesn't mean that there's not a battle to be fought and a war to be won, but we overcome evil with good. We turn the other cheek and we love, we love, we love all people, especially our enemies. That's how God in Christ has loved us. So the first thing I want to say, regardless of whether you're walking through a storm right now or you're before one, this character, the fruit of Christ, the fruit of the spirit of kindness, is something that God should be doing in our lives. And I want you to be on the lookout for how you relate to people outside 
of the faith, how you treat them, and also maybe what you expect from them. Some of the kindest people in my life, South Florida, even now, are some of my neighbors. Really far from God, really kind people. And I'm doing my best to share Christ in kind ways with them, invite them uh, into community, into life. But be careful, be careful here under this first point, I just wanna say, not to let an antagonistic or an adversarial relationship with unbelievers. It puts us to shame when the lost are kinder than us. It really does. May we be the kindest Christians around. So before the storm in this text, we perceive first kind unbelievers. Secondly, we perceive caring friends. Caring friends. Verses two and three. We'll see not only is Julius kind to him, but uh, let me just read verse three. The next day we put in at Sidon. That's where the, the ship docked and Julius treated Paul kindly. How did he treat him kindly? He gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. To be cared for by his friends. Before the storm, we perceive caring friends. A couple things jump out. First, this is Sidon. If you remember, Jesus preached all over these areas and he talked about Sidon. In a word of judgment against Chorazin and Bethsaida, he said, woe to you, you two cities, because if the mighty works had been done before Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. And I love that right here in Sidon, they have repented, that Jesus' words are being fulfilled, that there's a group of believers who have turned from darkness to light, as we looked at last week, from the power of Satan to God. They have come to Jesus, whether mighty works have been done there or not, they have believed in Jesus, and now a church has formed, a church that loves Paul and wants to care for Paul, so that now wherever Paul goes, he's not only preaching the gospel, but he's forming caring community of friends who want to look out for his, goodness, uh, for his good on, on behalf of God. They're taking care of Paul. They are caring friends baked into his life. And if you read through the book of Acts, at times we're tempted to say, Paul's a solo, lone ranger Christian, this, uh, you know, the apostle, he's kind of a, uh, yeah, just a, a rogue agent, kind of going and doing whatever he wants on his own. If you think that of the apostle Paul, you would be wrong. You have to look really closely, even at this passage here today. Paul is rarely, if ever, alone. He's always got companions. He's always got caring friends with him, not only on these stops where he's visiting churches. You remember he had Barnabas with him on his first missionary journey. They picked up John Mark with them. Luke is with them. Ten times, if you want to go back, look again. Ten times we have the we and the us in this section because Luke has now regathered and rejoined the journey. Think about that. Luke was not there before, and Paul is now arrested, and he's going on basically the ship with the prisoner up to Rome with his prisoner friend. Luke did not have to do that. He could have said, take good notes, Paul. I'll see you in Rome over there someday, and I'll, I'll get the cliff notes from you. Most commentators believe the reason we have the, you know, the stop by stop by stop by stop journey here is because Luke is penning everything as it's happening. This is his travel journal, his diary of where they're stopping, and it gets brought into the book of Acts at the end where he pulls this whole work for us together. Luke is with them. Luke is a faithful friend. Luke is a caring friend that did not have to hop onto that boat, did not have to end up shipwrecked with Paul, right? Luke's gonna end up shipwrecked and make it safely to Rome as well. But I also wanna draw your attention to one more caring friend in here. Look again in verse two. And embarking in a ship of Adramidian, 
which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we, so Paul, or Luke's including himself with the we, put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. If the name Aristarchus means nothing to you, um, he's one of those characters, again, that's sort of woven silently in the background, but just pops up every now and then. So those who've been going with us verse by verse through this series, the first time Aristarchus appears, a riot breaks out in Ephesus. And Paul wants to go in and stop the riot and speak for himself. And his friends are like, you're an idiot, Paul. Don't go in there, Paul. They're going to kill you, Paul. So who goes out to try to quell the mob? Gaius and Aristarchus. And they go out and they try to stop this and they are arrested instead of Paul. They throw themselves in front of him and they take the bullet, if you will, for Paul. Aristarchus is also with the Apostle Paul. He reemerges when they're going to Jerusalem to drop off the offering from all the various churches. He is part of collecting the support to alleviate the famine in Jerusalem. He is part of that group going to Jerusalem. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem ultimately goes to Caesarea where he picks up the boat today. Aristarchus is nowhere to be found in our text, though clearly he's somewhere in the background. And all of a sudden, Luke says, Paul, you're going to Rome? I'm going to Rome. And Aristarchus says, if Paul is going to Rome, I am going with him. I will not let him go there by himself. And the very same man that threw himself into a riot on behalf of his friend Paul, is now throwing himself next to a man in shackles saying, if you are a prisoner for Christ, I will be your fellow prisoner. I am going with you. He appears once again in one of the epistles, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. You can read it later where he shows up as one of Paul's fellow prisoners, Aristarchus. These are the silent uh, secret heroes in your Bible. They don't get a, you know, you don't go to Rome and you see the 12 apostle statues and there's Aristarchus, you know, like he sort of just fades away into the background and you read his name and it's kind of a weird name and you move on. You probably didn't even hardly notice it, right? And here he is on the boat. Aristarchus is going to be shipwrecked too. Aristarchus is going to Malta by the fire, warming his hands too. Aristarchus is going to Rome too. And church history records Aristarchus likely also died under the persecution of Nero with the Apostle Paul. A faithful friend, a caring friend to the very end. By the way, he's with him before the storm hits and everywhere in between. I've told you before, I'm not a big sports guy. (laughs) Um, So I always know when the Eagles are playing when you all are wearing green. Like, go Eagles, go Birds. I'm not for them or against them. I just, I'm just ambivalent, and forgive me for that. If, if you have to find a different church because of that, I'm sorry. I'm just joking. I don't like this church. Pastors not following sports. But there's another category. So I'm like the aloof, ambivalent. I'm not even paying attention. There's this other category they call the fair weather, fair weather uh, the crowd, right? The fair weather, what is it in sports? Help me out, everybody. Fans. That's how aloof I am. Fairweather fans. 
and they get all fired up and get all excited when the team is doing great. They jump on board and they are, go birds, go birds, right? They're all eagles, E-A-G-L-E-S, eagles. And then when the eagles are not doing so well, they just move on and do other things. Or maybe they follow the team that's doing really good. Fair weather fans. Well, as I was thinking about Aristarchus in this point, I realized that sometimes in our lives, if we're honest, we have some fair weather friends. We become a fair weather friend. You know what I'm saying? Like when everything's going great and everyone's hanging out, you're getting together. But when things get hard, when things get tough, when they really, really need you and you're like, oh, I'm a little busy. I'm not sure. They're getting kind of clingy, getting a little needy. What I love about Aristarchus, he is not a fair weather friend. He is a storm weather friend. And he is there with you before the storm hits. He will go with you through the storm even when he didn't have to. He did not have to get onto that boat. He did not have to. He chose to. He did not have to collect the Jerusalem offering and go. He didn't have to do that. He chose to. Why? Because he was a faithful friend. He was a caring friend. He was a storm weather friend. And as I think about this for us, brothers and sisters, maybe somebody's going through a storm right now. Can you be a storm weather friend to them? By the way, that's when you see the real friends, right? And it's not to say acquaintances aren't real and we don't have to be best friends, BFF, with everybody at church, so don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? But you should have a few in the church and outside of the church where you are there for them. You'll take a bullet for them. You will go down with the ship for them. That's what a faithful friend does. And maybe you need to be that for somebody right now who's going through a storm. Maybe you need to fortify and shore up those friendships with people before the storm hits. Or maybe you need that right now. And you just need the the courage to say, I'm hurting. I'm hurting and I need you. And it's embarrassing to be this vulnerable and this real with you and this raw. But I'm not going to make it without a good friend and I consider you a close friend. Would you stand with me through this time that I'm walking through? You can tell true friends when they stick with you in the really rough times. All of life is not a storm. We won't go through storms forever. But when we go through them, I pray that you have an Aristarchus in the boat with you or that you be an Aristarchus for somebody else. Luke Aristarchus, the Sidonians, they are portrayed to us before the storm strikes as caring friends. Thirdly and finally, not only do we see kind unbelievers, caring friends, but thirdly, unheeded dangers. Unheeded dangers. I want to reread this, verses 9 to 12, and talk through this a little bit. Verse 9 says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. The fast is referring here to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It, was the one, it is the one annual Jewish festival that uh, requires fasting. All the other ones are feasts, right? This is the fast. was already over. Paul advised them saying, sir, I perceive, he's again perceptive, that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo, the supplies, and the ship, but also of our lives. 
But the centurion, that's again Julius, paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. He paid more attention to what they said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that they could somehow reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. They take a risk. They take a risk against Paul's advice here. They are, uh, it's the fall now, getting closer and closer to the winter. This is 59 AD. So Yom Kippur, we could actually figure this out, was on uh, October 5th. This is October 5th, has already passed, of 59 AD. If you were sailing a ship, you would not put a ship out to sea any later than the beginning of November. It's a death sentence. You, you don't do it. You don't fight through the winters here. And so Paul is perceptive. We already saw that Paul was in multiple shipwrecks, right? So I don't know if this is his third. This is likely his last one, where that fits into 2 Corinthians. But either way, Paul knows what it's like to be shipwrecked. Paul knows what it's like to face the odds of, of going into sea when it's ill-advised. And he realizes this is not going to go well for us. Nothing about the revelation of God, by the way, here. There's not a sense of the Holy Spirit told Paul it's not going to go well. In fact, Paul is mostly right. There is a shipwreck, but there are no lost lives. Praise the Lord. We'll find out later. So he is just, this is just humanly speaking, we should not do this. We should not keep going. Let's just stay in fair havens. I know it's this little rinky-dink town. It doesn't have much supplies for us. We can barely find it on a map. But let's just stay and camp out here through the winter. Now, why did it go against Paul's advice? A bit speculative, but as I studied the commentaries, there is one thing. You see, this ship is from Alexandria. Did you pick that up earlier? This is the ship, verse 6. They found a ship of Alexandria. And later, we'll find out that as they're about to lose the ship, they're trying to stay afloat. They throw all the wheat overboard. That's in the next chapter. They throw all the wheat. So this is a grain vessel going from Egypt to Rome. And Egypt is the main provider of grains to Rome. It's like basically where they get all of their uh, grain for bread and all that sort of stuff. And under the previous administration, Claudius, he did give bonuses to those who would get their shipments in before the winter. And so there's a financial incentive to get this done, and now we're under Nero's rule. We don't have word that he continued it, but likely he did. Because, look, Paul is talking, saying, we shouldn't do it, we shouldn't do it. And then all of a sudden, the centurion, who is he talking to? He's talking to the owner. Did you see that? He's talking to the owner. He pays more attention to the owner of the ship and the pilot than to what Paul said. So it seems like the owner really wants to make good time, doesn't he? The owner just wants to get a little bit further in this journey, doesn't he? And the owner wants to get his grain, his wheat to his destination in the time that he's been hired to do it. So I think, I think that there's a financial incentive to push on and persevere and keep going despite the odds increasingly turning against them. Now there's a lot to, uh, to glean from that. First up, the unheeded uh, dangers here. Paul saw danger coming. It said, Paul advised them saying, sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. He perceives that this is a dangerous journey. There are warnings going out. You know, and sometimes the storms in our life, they catch us off guard. 
We, we could have never expected them. We did nothing to deserve them. A loved one dies suddenly, unexpectedly, out of the blue, and you said, there is no reason, humanly speaking, that this makes any sense. And I look up to heaven, and I say, God, I have no idea why I'm going through this storm right now. And you might never know until eternity why this happened. There's just things in our lives where people come to, Pastor, why did this happen? I don't know. But then there's other times, like this time, where you're going through the story like, whoa, why are we out at sea? And why is this ship about to be torn to pieces? And in the ship, somebody's saying, I told you so. I, if you had only heeded the warnings, you could have avoided this storm. But you had other things on the brain. And so here you are exposed to unnecessary risk. And by the way, you're not only exposed, but the minority who didn't want to be there in chains is now rocking on the boat with you, right? Some life lessons baked into this for us, for sure. And by the way, he goes with the majority opinion. Did you see that? The majority decided to put out to sea from there. Now, we do use parliamentary procedure at our church a couple times at our congregational vote. When our elders meet, the deacons use it to make decisions. The principle here is, right, like you, the majority decision is the decision that carries. And I think in general, it's a wise decision. By the way, we're still going to use it. This is not me appealing for an autocratic opportunity. Like, no more majority. Stephan is Paul. I get to do it. No, it's not what we're saying here. And yet, I have seen time and time again, including in your Bible, where the majority decision is the wrong decision. It's the wrong decision. And sometimes it takes an outside voice to speak into that. And if you are in a group, where a majority consensus starts to set in that might be dangerous or wrong, and you're trying to quelch or squell minority dissenters, warning, 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 especially in churches. Because a group thing can set into communities and you all go off a cliff or you do a circle the wagons thing to try to craft a narrative that protects the church and hurts innocent people. Warning, warning, warning. And if there is a minority dissenter, we should be all ears. All ears, and we should be very cautious about letting the majority trample over those minority voices. Because ships can be wrecked and lives could be lost and souls, souls could be scarred forever. All under the name of Jesus, God forbid. We're not perfect churches. We're not perfect leaders. We're not perfect people. This applies, by the way, to businesses just as much the church and in your families. But sometimes the majority decision is the wrong decision. And we need to be perceptive of what are the motives driving us to make this decision. Paul's motive is very evident. Don't want to die, don't want to lose the cargo, don't want to lose the ship. What is their motive for leaving Fair Havens? We're not told, but as I already hinted at, I think I can read between the lines. By the way, they're going to lose all the wheat anyway. 
not just going to lose the bonus if that's dangling out there. They're going to lose everything. They would have been wise. They would have been wise to heed the danger that Paul is alerting them to. So I think that these are important life lessons for us as we consider the storms in this life or the storms that you're going through. And whether the storm that you're about to go through or you're currently going through is one of your own foolish, you know, you jumped in against all the people warning you, don't do it, it's dangerous, you're gonna lose your shirt, and you said, nah, and you jumped in, and now you're, ah! Or one that you did not invite through any of your choices. I do know this, that whether we bring it on ourselves or whether it comes upon us unexpectedly, in the midst of the storm, we have the same question that the apostles had of our Lord and Savior Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Where they cry out to Jesus in Mark chapter 4. You remember, Jesus is asleep in the boat. They're caught in the storm. They said, Lord, Lord, teacher, master, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? I think regardless of what you're going through right now or in the future, what you go through, storms will come. You will go through storms. They are inevitable in this life. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, you will get to glory. Through many trials and tribulations, Jesus has promised us. But the question then is not, okay, Will I go through storms? You will go through storms. Here's the question I want to answer as we wrap up today's message and then look to next week for the very shipwreck itself. Do you not care? Jesus obviously gets up historically in that moment, calms the storm. He calms the storm and speaks peace over it. He quells it and delivers them out of it. But in this storm, he's not going to calm that storm. They're going to have to go through it and end up shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Do you not care? Yes, Jesus cares. Jesus always cares. And whether he calms the storm or he delivers you through the storm and you have to white knuckle it through it or whether the storm ultimately is game over for you, he cares that you are perishing. And I can say that confidently because we sang it earlier. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The ultimate deliverance you need is not a storm-free life, but a storm-free eternity. And Jesus entered into the storm of this world and he took all of it upon himself. His body was broken and shipwrecked for you because he cares about the storms that you walk through. When Jesus taught the great masterful sermon on the mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, he ended with this story. He said, he who listens, hears my word and obeys them is like a man who built his house on a firm foundation of rock. And when the storms come, that house will stand. But the one who does not listen and does not hear and does not obey is like the foolish man who built his house on a foundation of sand. 
And when the storm comes and beats against the house, that house will fall and great is the loss of that house. Jesus has done everything through his death and resurrection and teaching to give you storm insurance, all right? He's done everything to, so that you would not perish and so that your house will stand if you hear and obey him in the midst of the storm. And so where I want to end today's sermon is where we always end. We have to trust in Christ. We have to place all our confidence and hope in him. Believe that not only is he in control of the storms, that he can calm the storm, but that he will care for you through the storm to the very end. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Today we're going to take communion at the end of the service. I want to prepare our hearts for that as the band comes up to lead us as well in the song Cornerstone. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, just settling our hearts on what we've just heard. And then I also want to pray for the elements so that if you have not received the bread or the wine, just raise your hand. Our deacons would be happy to serve you as we take communion together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you care. You care when we're perishing. You cared so much that you gave yourself for us that we would not perish but have everlasting life. You care so much that you came from heaven to bring God's word to us that we would hear, obey, and build our lives on your firm foundation so that when the storms come, we would stand firm. And so Jesus, if there are any here today that don't know you presently, have not trusted in you, the first group I wanna pray for is those who'd like to turn to Christ today. Say, today is the day where I would like to place my faith in Jesus. Turn to him and know that I would never perish. Pray something like this in your heart. Say, Jesus, forgive me for my folly. Forgive me for going, running headlong into storms. God, heal me from the storms that I've walked through already and the sin that's done, been done not only by me, but to me. I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you are the savior of the world and I believe that you died and rose again for me. Today I place my faith in you, Lord Jesus. Come into my life by your Holy Spirit. Forgive me, cleanse me, and grant me the gift of everlasting life. For the church now we pray, God, that we would be men and women who would be storm weather friends. That we'd be humble enough to receive help when we're really hurting. Humble enough to ask for help when we really need it. And courageous enough to stand with people when they're at their weakest and they're at their worst. And Lord, we pray, God, that we would relate to unbelievers in kindness, that we wouldn't in any way minimize truth, that we wouldn't in any way uh, minimize the gospel, heaven and hell, all the things that we believe most deeply, and yet we would do it with kindness towards them because God, it is your kindness that has led us to repentance. And so God, we pray that we would be men and women of kindness that they would encounter the kindness of Christ through us, that you loved us when we were your enemies, that we would love all people, especially our enemies. And Lord, I just pray, God, for whatever storms lie ahead or whatever storms we are presently walking through, that you would be our anchor, that you would be our firm foundation, that you would be our strength. 
in the midst of the storm, we pray. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.